there. Welcome to Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, is climate change a ballot box issue? As a federal election looms, I speak with pollster David Coletto about Canadian attitudes towards climate change. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a major new report. Yes, that's right, the 60-second report segment is back after a short summer holiday. And then to wrap it all up, Mike Moffat is here with his usual list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. You can't have a strong economy unless you tackle climate we change. We have a plan to meet our Paris targets, but minimize the impact on jobs. Yeah, New Democrats and believe investment. in ending fossil fuel the subsidies. The Green Party of Canada Period. does uh, not support the construction of one single new pipeline in Canada. Yep. In that case you didn't know, there's a federal election happening in a few days. And climate change is a hot issue on the campaign trail. Just how hot an issue is it? Well, my next guest has been tracking public opinion on that very question, and he's going to tell us. But he's also been tracking Canadian attitudes towards climate change for much longer. And perhaps even more interesting are his insights on how those attitudes have evolved over time and how they might evolve over the next few years. I'm welcoming David Coletto. David is co-founder and CEO of Abacus Data, one of Canada's leading polling and public opinion firms. He's been doing marketing research for more than a decade, and in his spare time, he's professor in Carleton University's political management program. David, thanks for taking the time out to join Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Eric. I know it's it's busy times um, in, uh, in the life of a pollster. Um, how big an issue is climate change for Canadians in this election? Well, it's certainly in the top issues uh, this time around. Uh, there's a number of ways we measure it. Uh, when the campaign started, we had a question that said, you know, here's a long list of issues. Tell us the top five that are going to drive your vote. And at the time, 42% of Canadians put it in their top five issues. Uh, more recently, we've, we've kind of tried to really understand key ballot questions. And so we ask, what's the top two issues? And, and as of this weekend, 20% put it as their either first or second issue. So hmm. um, it is not by far the overwhelming top issue. There's no issue right now, actually, that does that. If any of them do, it's it's the cost of living. Right. Uh, but but it is it is an issue of, of of real concern. What's interesting, though, is who cares about this issue? It is one of the most politicized issues in the country, right? Mm. If you're a liberal, a new Democrat, a Green Party supporter, even a Bloc supporter, you are far more likely uh, to put it in your top basket of issues than if you were a conservative supporter, right? Um, just to give you a sense, over a quarter of liberal NDP uh, supporters put climate change in their top two issues. Almost half of Green Party supporters put it in their top two. Some would say, what, only half of Green Party supporters? But that's that's an interesting <laughs> uh, uh, evidence of, of the, the quirkiness of the Green Party coalition. But only 7% of conservatives put it in their top two issues. So- uh-huh. That that is, I think that gives some insight into into the dynamics of this issue and how politicized it is. But you know, if you look at the top issues, cost of living, climate change, healthcare, housing affordability, 
those are the top four and, and climate change is, is firmly in, um, you know, the minds of people as they think about this election and how they might vote. Yeah, it's right up there. That's interesting. Last episode, we were speaking with Catherine Hayhoe um, and she was talking about polarization in the United States, uh, which, you know, the, the polarization around climate change is famous, um, uh, notorious rather. Uh, it sounds like that exists here in Canada based on kind of those split down party lines that, uh, that you're describing. Besides the split down party lines, um, what can you say about, you know, which Canadians this is a bigger issue for? I mean, are there regional discrepancies? Are there uh, demographic discrepancies? Yeah, there is. And uh, we did some some interesting research with uh, the Institute for Climate Choices. We've done work with with Clean Energy Canada on an ongoing basis. Um, and, and if you ask the question differently and just say, how concerned are you about climate change? We, we do get 52%. So just over half say they're either extremely or quite concerned. Uh, but to your question about who, interestingly, younger Canadians under 30, the most likely to say they're either extremely or, or, or quite concerned about climate change. Okay. And interestingly, those over 60. So on, on either end of the kind of life cycle or age spectrum, you get higher levels of concern. Now, a ma- almost the majority of everybody across all ages are concerned about this, but you do see this really interesting dynamic where the younger and the older um, are, are signaling uh, a greater depth of concern. We also see, particularly more recently, regions of the country that have been hit by extreme weather. So British Columbia, for example, um, Atlantic Canada as well. You know, any, any, any community that's near a coastline um, seems to have a much more real appreciation for the impact it's having. Um, and then there's, there's this, you know, unique um, Quebecers, you know, uh, also stand out as, as being more engaged, I think, and more aware and, and concerned about climate change. But those, those regional differences um, are, are there, but they're not severe, except for Alberta and Saskatchewan to some extent, which stand out as, as really the exceptions. Now, there's a lot of Albertans and there's a lot of folks in Saskatchewan who are worried about climate change. Um, but it's just nowhere near the level that we see in, in, in neighboring provinces or, or other parts of the country. Hmm. You, you referred to, of course, you know, uh, some of those extreme weather events, the wildfires and the extreme heat that uh, were experienced most acutely by people in British Columbia uh, over the past uh, two or three months. You know, as, as Canadians have witnessed a number of these extreme weather events, how big an impact uh, do you think that has had on election priorities? So I, I do think that, that, that live events, real events that people see with their own eyes has the ability to not only make more people concerned about the issue, but, you know, pollsters often talk about issues in the context of, of issue salience, right? So on any given, on all those issues I, I mentioned earlier, vast majority of Canadians would say they're worried about those issues, but it's whether it's in focus, whether they are thinking about those issues as they assess the party platforms, as they assess the party leaders. And so this election started, I think, at a time when climate change was, was in people's minds. In many ways, the same happened in 2019, because you had the student protests happening just before that election started. Mm-hmm. And so these moments of time that capture people's attention um, can be really powerful framing effect on, on what people think about. The challenge is that was four and a half weeks ago. Uh, today, you're hear less about it, right? Because we've moved on. And 
this short attention span that both I think consumers of information have, as well as the media, as well as the parties, means that you know that issue I don't think has sustained itself uh, as top of mind. I don't necessarily think climate change for most people right now is a is, is a is a ballot box question. Is and the ballot box question is the ballot box question of this election? Interesting. Why do you think that is? Why you know if if we've had this summer of extreme weather of extreme climate events. Um, and, you know, consistently Canadians have uh, recently at least put it in kind of the, the, their top concerns. Why is it not the ballot box question? I, I think it's there's a number of reasons, I think. These are more hypotheses than, than something I can really confirm with data because they're, it's complicated. But I think one of the reasons is because um, to a lot of voters, even those who care deeply about this issue, Climate change has has moved from being an issue that that parties can easily respond to and and differentiate themselves versus an issue that becomes part of the broader assessment that you make of a political party, right? Uh-huh. And so the reason I say that is if you're somebody who cares deeply about climate change, it's highly unlikely you're even considering voting for the Conservative Party, right? That the despite their best attempts to try to appear. Um, and and maybe genuinely care about this issue. Uh, people who deeply care about it look at that party and say, "You're the least likely to get my vote because out of all the parties that I have to choose from, you don't seem as ambitious or as you don't talk about it as much as I want you to." And so I automatically write you out. And then the second reason might be that, and this is the nature of politics, I think, is the parties will decide which issues they believe they can really differentiate themselves on. And as I've, as I've learned firsthand in doing research on climate change, it is a, you know full well too, a very complicated issue, right? It's not as easy to say, I'm going to make life more affordable by cutting your GST, right? Yeah. And so competition on who can handle this issue best is, is far more nuanced. And so as much as I think the liberals, um, for example, are trying to contrast themselves with the conservatives on climate change, they're also competing with the New Democrats and the Greens and the Bloc to, you know, be positioned as best on this issue. And and yet voters don't really, I think, see a lot of distinction. Okay. Yeah. And, and you said it, 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 you know, there are varying shades of green now in terms of uh, the party platforms. Um, it's not as black and white as it used to be. Um, I think even, you know, looking back to 2019, um, a lot has changed in terms of, particularly in terms terms of the Conservative Party platform, um, which uh, which has has grown in terms of its climate credibility uh, this time around. Um, you know, start. I, I want I want to tap into your insights that go many years back, but starting with just a comparison of election forty three and election forty four, twenty nineteen, and this year. Um, have you seen? Uh, much of an evolution in terms of uh, the party uh, posturing around climate change? Well, I think you raise a really important point. In, in just two years, um, we've seen a almost seismic shift in, in the perception that people have about which party is best able to handle this issue. So back in 2019, you know, we asked a question, you know, which party is best able to handle, um, you know, different issues. And in 2019, among those who cared about climate change, the Green Party led by 21 points 
over the liberals. So there was like 40% picked the greens and then 20% picked the liberals about wow. that. Wow. Today, when we ask the exact same question, the liberals are ahead by 15 over the conservatives and the greens actually come fourth. Right. Wow. So within a two year period, public perceptions and, and you described the greening of all the parties in a way that's happened. And the liberals have done an exceptionally good job at positioning themselves perceptually in the minds of voters, at least more voters, that they are the party of of climate action. Isn't that and, interesting? Right. So for years, I went back in 2015, the Greens are ahead. In 2011, we our first election we did polling on, the Greens were well, well ahead. Right. It was that one thing that the Greens could always count on that says we're best on this issue. It's in our name. Right. Like yeah. it was it's tied to their brand. Yeah. Well, you're seeing this, the, the challenges the Greens are having apart from their internal struggles that they no longer if you're a one party, one issue party and you lose ownership of that issue. You don't even know the what's issue the point anymore. of you anymore. <laughs> right. And so the Greens and the New Democrats and to some extent. Although I still don't, you know, those who care deeply about this issue don't choose the conservatives as the best on it, um, have have in a way co-opted uh, the Greens and have made climate change part of their platform and their identity as much as, you know, um, Indigenous reconciliation or social justice issues for the NDP or, you know, helping the middle class for the Green, for the Liberal Party, right? It's now become part of that. and And I think when you ask people, who is the leader, you know, that that most cares deeply about climate change? Mr. Trudeau, the prime minister, the liberal leader is, is very high up on that list, even though there I know lots of environmentalists who would say he has not done enough in the six years he's been in power. So that's the power of of communications and framing and branding that that often has nothing to do with reality. It's, in fact, the perception that that really drives this. And, and so that shift has happened in a very short period of time. That is, that is so interesting. Um, you know, 10 years ago, you know, this is what every environmentalist wanted, this kind of election um, where you had varying shades of green um, and, you know, varying levels of, of high ambition. Um, although some would say that, uh, you know, what we're seeing in all the campaign platforms is, is still not enough. But still, compared to 10 years ago, we're, we're in a different stratosphere. Um, Based on the polling that you've done and the public opinion research that you've done over the past seven years uh, that I've been following it, you know, how have you seen the evolution of Canadian attitudes uh, with respect to climate change? Well, let me take even a a step farther back and go back to 2008. And that was probably the first federal election in which, at least in the early days or just before it was called, the environment or climate change was at the top of the list, right? It, It was coming off... Al Gore's, you know, popularity around uh, his his book and then his his documentary, and I think there was a real appreciation uh, for environment as a top issue. And and Stefan Dion, the Liberal leader, brought out what at the time was a highly controversial and ambitious, you know, green shift. And then soon after, you had the recession that hit, and the environment was 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 completely wiped off as a top issue, and people's focus became the economy and jobs and, and their their livelihoods. Since yeah. then, I think the, the environment has consistently been um, a top issue, right? It's become cemented. Mm. But as I think about public opinion, um, I wonder if that is actually, as much as you know, more and more people say they're, they're, they believe climate change is real, they, they want action, they describe it as an emergency, but it's almost like we've become so used to talking about it that it, be, it no longer has 
value, right? It no longer is novel. And the outcome of more or less consensus among the political class that actions needed has meant that the differentiators within the public mind have, have been sort of scrubbed away. That's interesting. I, I mean, in one, one way of looking at that is as a success for, for environmentalists uh, and for people who care about climate change because, you know, climate has become part of the wallpaper. It's become part of the furniture in the room. It's going to be in every platform. Um, and, uh, and for some, some might see it as a success, but as, as you're pointing out for it to become kind of a differentiator, to become a ballot box issue, to become, um, something that really drives how people vote, uh, you need to, you need to have, uh, events that, that make it pop. Maybe something like in 2019, how those student protests, uh, around the world, the Fridays for the future protests really kind of helped galvanize people's, uh, uh, thinking and, and opinions around around climate change. And, and I'll just use another example. We are still in the midst of a global pandemic, and the global pandemic is not the top issue of this election, <laughs> right? Does like, that surprise you? It's there. I mean, it does, but it also, I think, is, is it maybe confirms my theory that we've become exhausted talking about it, right? We don't want to talk about it anymore. So let's talk about the things. Now, I mean, every issue we're talking about is related to the pandemic. So Inflation is being driven by the pandemic. Housing prices are going through the roof because okay. of the pandemic. We're worried about our health system because of the pandemic. Okay. Um, and so there's a lesson there for, for climate activists and, and, and those who want to push the agenda is you have to extend the reach of the climate crisis beyond the climate crisis, right? You have to start talking about the health effects of climate change. You have to make it real and, 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 and put it in connection to ev- people's everyday lives once that happens, then you will get, um, you know, that, that you hit that tipping point in which politicians have to respond. They have to offer solutions um, and, and be seen as caring deeply about this issue. I think we're, we're not far from a place, and I think the Conservative campaign has signaled it, where you cannot be elected Prime Minister of Canada if you are not bilingual and if you don't believe clearly that climate change is an existential crisis. One one poll, and and maybe I'll end on this one. Um, one poll that I was I was consulting of yours uh, from back in June was this question around the link between climate change and climate action and the economy. And it seems like there's been this this kind of you know an about face where people who you know the old narrative out there was that taking action on climate change is going to hurt our economy. Actually, your June poll found the opposite, that the vast majority of Canadians uh, found, felt that taking action on climate change will actually be good for the economy. Is that a, a frame um, and an understanding that you think is going to stick with the Canadian public? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, as, as we watch around the world and other countries kind of accelerate their investments in clean technology, in, in transitioning to, you know, uh, zero emission vehicles and putting the infrastructure in place to make that happen. Uh, political leaders are going to be under pressure to show what are you doing about it? How are you keeping pace? And so I do think there's been a fairly quick, fairly wholesale shift in in, in the public's view that uh, dealing with climate change is not, a, it's not costly. It's not a cost, right? It is actually a, potentially an advantage for us. And we may not even be talking about climate action in five years. Instead, it's just going to be 
you know, action uh, because everything is going to be done in the fr- in the lens of we have to make decisions that move us towards, you know, social equity, economic growth, and you know, get us to net zero. And and I don't think we're that far from seeing the language change pretty broadly, where people just assume that politicians and and governments have to make decisions that that meet those criteria. Interesting. Where where climate policies are no longer as presented as climate policies, but as economic policies, social policies, health and safety policies. Um, that's fascinating. Um, David, thank you so much for, you know, just a few days out from an election. Um, I know there's lots of people that are interested in what you're seeing um, in public opinion. So I appreciate you taking the time out to, to speak to me today. You're welcome. Anytime I can talk about this issue, because it's in my mind, the most important one too. So uh, thanks for this great chat, Eric. Thanks. That was David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data. For a link to some of his firm's most interesting public polling and research on climate change, we've curated some links at this episode's webpage, available at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now it's time for the 60-second report. It's something we'll begin doing every show again now that the summer is pretty much over. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're featuring a study published last month in the journal Nature. It's called The Montreal Protocol Protects the Terrestrial Carbon Sink. Here is one of the report's lead authors from the University of Exeter in England, Anna Harper. The Montreal Protocol is an environmental policy success story. It was signed in 1987 to protect the ozone layer by limiting the emission of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs. But what if it hadn't succeeded? Without the Montreal Protocol, the ozone hole would have kept growing, allowing more harmful UV to reach the surface. We modeled the effects of this on the world's vegetation. We found that by 2100, plants would absorb only a quarter of the carbon dioxide each year compared to what they absorb now. This would be a drastically different world. There would be more CO2 in the atmosphere. Previous work estimated a global warming of 1.7 degrees Celsius by 2100 without the Montreal Protocol because CFCs are greenhouse gases. We estimated an additional 0.8 degrees of warming due to the harmful effects of UV on plants. So future protection of the ozone layer is an essential part of limiting future climate change. Thank you, Anna. For a link to that new report, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And last but not least, it's the final segment of every show. It's where I turn to my colleague Mike Moffat to recap all the things happening in the green economy that I didn't cover elsewhere on the show. Mike is the senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. Mike, over to you for the top five things we should know about in the green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, Canada plays host this week to the World Circular Economy Forum. It's the first time that the event, expected to draw 8,000 virtual delegates from 130 countries, has been hosted in North America. The event is about eliminating waste from the global economy, which could lead to $25 trillion in economic gains and a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. 
Number two, the Biden administration in the U.S. has tabled a plan that would see almost half of the country's electricity supply come from solar power by 2050. Currently, solar power contributes only 4% to U.S. electricity supply. Such an increase will require the country to double the amount of solar power installed every year over the next four years, and then double it again by 2030. Number three, the world's largest direct air capture project is set to be built in Iceland. The partnership between the Icelandic government and Swiss company Climeworks is expected to suck 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide out of the air every year. It's a big step for an early stage technology, which many models show will be needed to play a major role in meeting the world's climate goals. Number four, the shipping industry is proposing important steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Last week, two leading shipping associations proposed a dedicated price on carbon pollution. They are proposing that the proceeds from the carbon levy go towards building port infrastructure for cleaner shipping fuels like hydrogen and ammonia. And number five, Brazil, the largest beef exporter, has approved a feed additive that reduces methane emissions from cattle. Emissions from cattle and other livestock are responsible for 44% of the world's methane emissions and almost 15% of total greenhouse gas emissions. The feed additive has been found to reduce methane from cattle by as much as 55%. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thank you, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. As usual, I want to remind you that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like having smart, evidence-based conversations about the green economy. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out September 30th. 